this is Brett and Zach are here in the office and then Shane is a little under the weather. So he is zooming in. Well, I guess he's Skyping in um, from his house. Good, good. Beautiful. Yay. Now the harder part of piecing all this together and making it all mad. <laughs> An hour, 40 minutes. <laughs> oh my God. Multiple gigabytes. Hey guys, and welcome to season one, episode 21 of the Every Plant Story podcast, the podcast where we share all sorts of plant stories and behind the scenes from the life of us here at Gabriel Plants and around our lovely plant community. My name is Brett Weiss. I'm head grower here at Gabriel Plants, and I'm your co-host for this podcast, along with my co-host Shane Hello. and Zach. Howdy, howdy. Uh, today, we are going to be talking with Dominic Gravine of Redleaf Exotics, uh, where he runs one of the country's best and leading Nepenthes nurseries. Uh, so very excited to go ahead and get started with that today. Yeah, I'm really excited for this because, Brett, you've been you've been on the Nepenthes game, but I know this is somebody you've been really looking up to. And uh, I, I don't want to say have a crush for, but have a crush for his work. <laughs> Yes, it's it's really exciting what he's been able to do with his facilities and the plants he's been able to grow. I mean, we grow a, a handful of carnivorous plants here at Gabriella from tissue culture, but the work that he does with uh, cuttings and seed growing and hybridizing is really completely different from anything that we even attempt to do in the carnivorous realm. So really excited to talk to him today. Yeah, it's kind of perfect timing, too, because, I mean, we've been covering a bunch of these past few weeks for Plan of the Week and everything, and so I've uh, I've been looking at these real, real up close and personal, so it's going to be nice to learn, actually learn some stuff about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm really excited. Let's uh, let's go ahead and jump into that, and we can kind of touch on the standard uh, podcast uh, announcements or housekeeping uh, after this interview. So uh, enjoy this interview with Tom, and uh, yeah, Brett, take it away. Here we go. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. Um, today, we have the pleasure of having Dominic Gravine on our podcast as our very special guest. He is the owner and founder of Redleaf Exotics, which is one of the USA's leading carnivorous plant nurseries specializing in Nepenthes based out of Tennessee. So welcome, Dom. Hello. Hello, hello. So I... I would love to know for for everyone listening who hasn't had the chance to uh, read all about you on your website. Um, what what is your origin story? What what got you into plants? That's a long story. Um, <laughs> so when I was, it's a good one too. When I was <laughs> around ten, um, I grew up. You know, I had a big family, and I just think I was bored one day. And I was walking through, there was this trail that kind of went through people's yards and there were compost piles. I didn't know what they were at the time, but it was just big piles of dead plants and stuff. And I don't know why, but there was actually an iris uh, in the compost pile with all of its rhizomes and growths. And it looked so weird to me. I don't know why it caught my attention, Um, but I went home and I got, we had a red wagon and I put the iris in it (laughs) and I uh, dragged it home. It was so heavy. It was a huge clump. uh, they obviously didn't want it. They probably were dividing them or something. And um, I planted it in the woods behind my house. And every day I would go see it and I watered it. And it started to grow. 
And I knew nothing about plants. I don't even know why it sparked my interest. It just did. Um, and then it flowered and it had the, the typical, beautiful, big, beautiful uh, purple flower on it. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it was the sense of accomplishment and nurturing. And I'm like, oh my God, I made this thing flower. <laughs> uh, that's where I started growing plants. And that little garden in the woods, literally like the little secret garden, um, I kept adding plants to it. Um, and it was so beautiful. And then I, I, I moved it toward our house and it just kept growing and growing. And then my that's where my uh, passion for plants started. Um, and then I got into indoor tropicals, bromeliads, orchids, um, orchids a lot. I had an obsession for orchids. Um, and then one day I was at Home Depot and I saw the Venus flytraps, but uh, the one was in the Penthes or the tropical pitcher plants that I now specialize in. And the photo on the container was so enticing. Like, <laughs> and, and knowing what it was then, it totally was not that plant. Like right. it's such, it was such a wrong photo. <laughs> um, Basically like any fast food or anything, it just looks 10 times better than it actually is in person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, now today that, that, whatever that photo was, it was Ventricosa porcelain. Those plants sell for like $800. It definitely wasn't that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was just the common Ventricosa and it was so little, but I'm like, hmm, this will look so different than all the Venus flytraps. So I took it home and then I looked it up on the internet just in Nepenthes. And when I saw them, I'm like, whoa, I was just <laughs> so pulled in. And that's when it, it all started when Nepenthes there around age 13, um, it just really took me over. That's, that's amazing. Here I am. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. I love, I love hearing everyone's story, especially when, when it starts so young, you know, and it just kind of. One question, how old were you when that happened? When I started plants? Yeah, yeah when you, when you collected this iris. I want to say 10. I literally wow. could have been eight or nine. It, it, it was around there. It was very young. And I just don't know why that big pile of roots and leaves coming out of it interested me but it did <laughs> that's awesome yeah just to see yeah. just to see it take over and like become this all-consuming thing that then you devote your entire life to it seems to be a trend with like a, a lot of people that we talk to that is that are in this industry it's just once they get hooked they're hooked for life Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. And I don't know if it's really, I guess I'll say valid to say, but I feel like, you know, the plant industry is definitely male dominated. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something uh, about the, the challenge and the, you know, what it brings, the end result that is so rewarding and kind of like I accomplished this because as we know, some plants are so difficult and hard to grow or just take a lot more patience and when you get that achievement or you achieve the goal of like making a bloom or whatever there's just something in that that's it really pulls i don't know really pulls you in yeah. and i i just feel like men overall are more kind of like a challenge and like that but i don't know <laughs> for me that's what it was like just the feeling of like wow i did that yes that's what <laughs> got me hooked in i love it i mean we all have plant yeah. we all have plant problems here but it is c 
kind of like the equivalent of guys who go out to just sit on a boat and quote unquote fish all day just to eventually have like maybe the one fish they catch. You know what I mean? But like, (laughs) it's still the activity they love the most. And I definitely see some correlations to, you know, what my grandpa would do. And like to him, it was honestly more about the process of sitting on the boat, even if he caught nothing, just like, you know, growing plants can be something day to day that you don't see something really cool. And then it's definitely rewarding when you do see that bloom or you do see that growth or you do catch that fish. You know, there's something to be said about that kind of investment in something that is a delayed gratification like that. Yes, it's so it's so good. I love it. Live for that feeling. (laughs) So now, Dom, you're growing in Tennessee. So to my understanding, you have two two greenhouses, correct? A highland and a lowland greenhouse. That is correct. Yep. And so, what are the what are the dimensions like? What is your actual growing space size? I don't know the exact square footage, even though it's probably really easy to figure out. Um, <laughs> I have a twenty four by seventy two, and I think the ceiling's like fourteen feet tall. Okay. And um, eight foot side walls, and then I have um, a smaller twenty four by forty eight, and that's around nine foot ceiling, five foot side walls, and both are just. I'm ready for another one. Right. <laughs> always. Uh, always. I did, I, always did a li- I did a little bit of math and you have 2,880 square feet. There we go. Leave it to Shane. <laughs> More than a house. More than a house. <laughs> so, so now um, I know you specialize in Nepenthes, but you also grow other carnivorous plants as well. What is your process? Are you growing primarily from cuttings? Is it seeds? Is it a lot of tissue culture? So... The beginning of the business was, um, if most people have heard me say exotic plants, um, they are the world's leading nursery with Nepenthes, and my I look up to them. They're my idols, my Beyonce's, my everything. <laughs> I, I love them. They are so amazing. And they have always done things by seed and cuttings, and that that is something that has always appealed to me. So I started importing from them and reselling their product and offering it. And now I'm at a point where I'm making my own hybrids and my own cuttings as well as supplying their plants, but just doing this for as long as I have, you know, tissue culture wasn't as prevalent when I was younger and, and starting out. And it's something that has always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> and sometimes it's a really touchy subject mm-hmm, um, for sure. because although I, I do understand like its benefits, I am totally about seed grown cuttings. I don't want to scrape a cell and mass produce it in a lab. Like it's so unattractive for me, just <laughs> my point. So I'm all about seed grown cuttings, you know, put it out in the sunlight on the bench and in the hard, tough conditions. And that's mainly how I propagate and um, offer stock. Um, Just with growing and expanding and having to fill in where, uh, you know, offering to people that are just getting into this, that aren't going to buy like a $500 in a Penthes. Of course, I want everyone to have, you know, carnivorous plants or the plants I love. So I have had um like sarsenia and venus um not venus flytraps just sarsenia um and one very common nepenthes tissue culture just to get that out and put it on like etsy and and get that flowing just so people can get into them and i'm not offering something that's so unique and has a lot of time behind it that they're just going to kill so that's the only tissue culture that i'll offer but other than that my practice is completely seed grown and and cuttings and diversity i I love genetic diversity i stand behind it a hundred percent 
so yeah, that's mainly how I offer and produce. No, that's amazing. So, I mean, understanding, I feel like I have a, a somewhat good understanding on Nepenthes. Nepenthes are either male or female plants, correct? Yep. So yep. from seed, from, from seed germination, how many years does it take for you to then be able to sex and have a plant bloom that you could then use for reproduction? Um, so for me, I'm getting, you know, I, I'm still, you know, I'm still very young at doing this, you know, it takes a lot of time, but, um, I'm getting faster at it, but I would say four years, like, you know, that's quick. Mm -hmm. uh, when I plant, when I get a plant to bloom and I plant seeds, you know, it takes, it could take, you know, six to eight weeks, sometimes more months than that, just to sprout. And then, you know, in two years, you're looking at like, a three inch seedling and then maybe in three years it gets a little bigger i would say or four or five it could be six uh some of the species can take 10 plus years to ever get a flower wow uh, it's very very slow compared to you know like planting pansies or something right right <laughs> which is really very slow which really does highlight kind of the the downside i think you've kind of like without saying it the downside to see tc the upside is for the one that you do bring to market you can definitely get a lot faster than the process of seed but like you're saying that doesn't produce anything unique or new you're just taking something mm -hmm. and mass replicating it so i think people don't often realize that the new stuff the hybridizing all that stuff definitely takes so much more time and is why new plants even in today's technology are still slow to the market in general yeah yeah and you know i've being a collector and doing this you know since i was so young all of the collectors and and people they, they just there is a thirst for the seed grown and the genetic diversity and the unique traits and there's going to be people that just don't care they just want a plant um but I will remain true to offering unique, rare, you know, you cannot beat genetic diversity. Um, I just, you know, the tissue culture, it has its place with just getting plants out there. But my goal has never been to just get plants out there. Like my plants come first and the care for them mm -hmm. and then how I propagate them. And then my customers come. And I feel like that's always mm -hmm. been a really good business model that worked for me. I'm not trying to mass produce things and, and supply everyone and make sure everyone's happy in that way. I'm really trying to make sure everything stays unique and, and the passion remains instead of just, you know, Hey, I sell plants. Well, and I think, I think that can be seen just through the quality of what you send out and what you produce is that there definitely is the passion and the love in every single plant that you grow. hundred percent. Yeah. It is commendable for yeah. sure. Uh, when I'm, so I, I grow um, as I was saying, one species or variety of Nepenthes that is TC just to get people into them. You know, I'm not selling them some expensive, crazy, took so long to produce. And I, I really do feel like with the energy, like when I'm packing those plants and I'm picking them, because, you know, if you put them on Etsy or something, they just sell like hotcakes. Like they're so cheap. They're, there's so many of them. When I'm picking those plants, there's like kind of like, oh, it's nice. And I, I'm happy that I'm sending it out. But the feeling is so different when someone's buying, you know, a, a seed grown plant for me and I sit there, it could take me, you know, 20 plus minutes just <laughs> to select a plant for them. I want to make sure they're happy. I want to make sure the traits are looking good on it. And that is where the excitement and the whole fun and like passion of what I love to do starts to come in. Um, it just kind of fades away when it's a tissue culture plant for me. <laughs> 
Yeah, and then you get to know that one of your babies is out there living its best life, like somewhere else in the country. It's like so cool. And then, and then they send me photos, and you know, the ones <laughs> as a as a collector, obviously, it just makes sense that you would pick some of the best ones to keep for further breathing. Um, but when you make a lot, you know, customers will send me a photo, and I'm like, oh my god, that's probably the best one. <laughs> so fun, you know. I like when people have something I don't have that I could desire and vice versa. It, that's what makes it so fun to not have something that everybody else has. Uh, that's another, you know, spark in it. Oh, yeah. The unique thing will always sell. Now, you mentioned you're kind of new to it. How how long, when did you really start, you know, the business per se? Obviously, passion started really young for you. But, you know, how long have you been doing it in total? And how old are you now? You know, what do you see in the future beyond you know how, how, what does that pathway look like to you in the business sense yeah and especially talk on the move from new york to where you are now because i think that is just such a an amazing like following your passion type type deal okay um i guess i'll start there and if i <laughs> forget what i'm talking about just get me back on track <laughs> um so you know, I started in Brooklyn. I, I was a photographer for 12 years prior, but I always had, you know, plants, like I said earlier, and, and Nepenthes were always with me. I've been through so much selling collections to move and one window sale to the next. And when I lived in uh, Manhattan, I had them on my windowsill, all across my windowsill. And then when I, uh, I was just, you know, I need to go on vacation. And I'm like, why don't you go to Australia and see EP? Like, that's something you... Oh, that was like my number one thing to do in life. Go visit them. And I'm like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So figured that out. I went to visit them. And when I was working in their greenhouses and just their life in the middle of nowhere, Australia, the biggest Nepenthes I've ever seen. I just remember like leaning against the bench and thinking, holy crap, this is what I want to do the rest <laughs> of my life. Their life is so awesome. Wow. You just like live, have huge greenhouses and plants. Um, and, and just get to enjoy them. And then when I went back to New York, within two months, I started building. I, I literally moved out of the city after living there for three years, moved out of the city to Brooklyn, built a greenhouse in this backyard. I told the landlord it was such a rundown property in like a very undeveloped part of the neighborhood. And I told him, I'm like, the only reason I'll rent this room is if you could let me build a greenhouse in the backyard. And he's like, okay. And then I started building it. And he was, he never would come by a lot, but I completed it. It was a 14 by 24 foot, which was huge for me. <laughs> in Brooklyn. Yeah. He, he comes back. Well, there was nothing in the yard. It was overgrown. Trees were coming through. Actually, when I cleaned it, I was so happy that there was a concrete slab underneath. It was like destiny. And um, once I built it and he came to see it, he's like, oh, wow, this is really big. I'm like, I told you I was building a greenhouse. <laughs> uh, and it was cool because my bedroom opened right up into the backyard. It was like a private backyard and it went right to the greenhouse. But um, once I got that all going and, you know, things started to grow and and it was definitely more felt still more like a hobby then. And it was. Um, but then, you know, as things grow, then I started importing and and more people wanted plants. And then I started making my own cuttings and and just really thrived a lot off doing the Exotica plants imports. Um, and after a couple years of doing that, uh, there was actually another nursery in the United States that became the sole vendor for EP. And it crushed my heart. I'm like, oh, no, like, I can't 
import from them as a business and reoffer their plants. And they're very close friends of mine. And they're like, Dom, it just, that's how it was because I wasn't really a business then, you know, right. I was just a hobbyist. So it just makes business sense for them to, you know, become exclusive with someone that's already a thriving business. Uh, but that something happened there and it didn't continue and it opened back up and they offered it to me. And I was like, oh, so they made me the sole distributor only after a couple of years, which was a huge deal and definitely wow. a huge, um, had the biggest impact of where I am today with this. Mm -hmm. So as that started growing, things getting, uh, got more serious and I needed more room. Um, I wasn't even really, I just started to make my own hybrids in Brooklyn because you need so much space and time. And like I said, male and female plants to make seeds. So I just started seed then. And I was, you know, 28 or nine or 27, you know, and I've been growing my whole life. So started reproducing them later. Um, and then once that just greenhouse, greenhouse started getting so full, I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, I have to. I need another greenhouse or I need to figure something out. And I'm like, what about the basement of this house? Um, <laughs> I didn't know. I, I knew I needed space. And then um, my friend, uh, close uh, childhood friend, Jerry, he, he would come and help me with the imports. Um, I didn't even have room to pack all this stuff. We would bring all the boxes down the basement in this apartment. <laughs> it was so creepy down there and spread out all the plants. There were like thousands of plants to ship out. And just with that realization, we came to the idea of like, hey, what happens if we like just move somewhere and we make this even bigger and and build greenhouses? Because I got him into Nepenthes. He lived in Florida and he always had a small greenhouse with them. So we're like, yeah. And then we started like getting into this idea. So, you know, just two years in Brooklyn, just two. It's like time flies we decided, hey, let's move to Tennessee. Land's really cheap. We could get a house. We could build bigger greenhouses. The weather is like not too hot, but it's not too cold. Um, and then, you know, we it, it just all kind of really fast happened. We found a house here. We moved everything here. It was really interesting to pack a, how big was that truck? A 25 plus feet. It was huge. Well, it looked like a greenhouse in the back of a truck, <laughs> brought it all down here. But before I did, um, he was down here building the greenhouses by himself. And it's like, who, none of us have ever built huge greenhouses. Uh, you just kind of have to, you know, dive in and figure it out. So he was building, I came down to help sometime because we had to have it set up before I right. got here and before the plants had to have somewhere to come to that's all set up. So we just balanced it all out, moved it all down here, and then everything just started growing. I mean, cuttings happened. I had so many plants that started to bloom, and then I started to make my own seed-grown stuff, and, and it just, it, it's never-ending growth, and, and now we're here. Oh, that's, that's, that's so incredible. exciting. Yeah, that's so exciting. What year Very was that that you, that, you, that you guys moved to Tennessee? What was that? What year did you guys move to Tennessee? 2018. Okay. By the way, yeah. the apartment oh, owner awesome. was just really happy and excited about the greenhouse because that's like a whole other apartment worth of square feet he can charge for once you moved out. <laughs> oh, oh he, you know he got more money from me. He loved that part. Um, <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll, I'll give you extra rent. It was so cheap there. I mean, it, it was $700 a month for being in Brooklyn. It was still so close. That was nothing compared to what the rent is, you know, inside the city. Right. So I was willing to come up to what I was paying there just to, you know, be able to do uh, 
what I wanted to do, I guess. Do it for the plans. Whatever you have to do, do it for the plans. It's all for the kids. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I understand that. With with, with <laughs> moving to Tennessee, how, how has, you mentioned not too cold, not too hot. Obviously, a lot of what we grow in Florida, um, and the reason why Florida and California are typically a, a very high condensed you know, um, those are the two highest agriculture output states, especially for things that are tropicals or houseplants um, in agriculture in yep. general, a lot of times. What what made the Tennessee um, thing work? And, you know, what can Nepenthes handle? What type of, of changes did you need to make for that kind of thing to be successful year round in Tennessee? And then on um, top of that, can you on top of that, can you explain for the listeners the difference between highland and lowland Nepenthes? Yes. Um, so we'll start there. Uh, lowland Nepenthes, I would say, are the easiest to grow. You know, they come from around sea level up to, uh, I don't know, a thousand feet. Not not very high, but very hot, very hot and humid. Um, maybe more built for in-home conditions, but they do like high humidity. Um, they're just so easy. The traits, in my opinion, overall... You know, there's some beautiful lowland nepenthes, um, but it's the highland ones that really get me going. I mean, mm -hmm. highland anything, even orchids, just mm -hmm. highland stuff has such a charming vibe to it. If I'm sure some of you guys have been in highland forest somewhere in the tropics, oh, like when it's yes. cold, but foggy, but you have orchids all over the trees. There's <laughs> nothing like a highland um, environment. The highland plants are really the ones that, you know, get me going and they are the biggest factor um, for what I do. You know, Tennessee, it doesn't get, it gets hot, but not like Florida hot. Um, and we have the cool season, which is so important. Um, the highland plants really don't want to be, you know, much above 80 degrees. They really don't. I could get them into the 80, 85 degrees Fahrenheit, which is fine. But the biggest thing is getting them down, uh, you know, a 15 to 20 degree drop at night. That is so beneficial to keeping them really, really happy um, in the long term. Uh, I would say, you know, 55 to 60 degrees at night is such a beautiful sweet spot. Um, and that's just very difficult. I, I lived in Florida. It's very difficult to achieve that in Florida. Um, so that's why I didn't want to go too hot. Uh, you know, I have my winter period, the cool season, which is a, you know, a few months out of the year, it's just long enough. Um, even going into spring and drifting off into fall where I'm really getting that, uh, night and day shift, which the plants love. Um, and then just in the hottest of months, um, they slow up a little bit. They, they, I'm, I'm better than ever at getting them, uh, through summer. Like this year, I'm barely noticed any flinch. Like they, they weren't too pissy. Nice. Um, yeah, they, they glide through summer, but once like now this time of year, now that it's getting cool, but it's still bright. Oh my God, just the leaf jumps and, and the size of the pictures and the color and they, it's their season, the Highland plants, um, the lowland don't really want any, you know, night day shift really. They don't care for that. They just want to be hot, hmm. um, which makes the, it makes them easier to grow. Um, the Highlander definitely, the true Highlanders are definitely more of a challenge. Hmm. And yeah, that's what brought me to Tennessee. Awesome. <laughs> not too hot, not too cold. Okay, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, then yeah. I'd like to go back to the breeding aspect a little bit. Um, I'm very interested in this. So because you have your male and female plants all breeding 
when you're doing your crosses is by hand, right? So you're taking pollen from one donor and and hand pollinating the female of your choice, correct? Yes. So now on average in a what type of yield do you get from that? Like how many seedlings do you get from one cross? Oh my god, so many. <laughs> oh really? Um, okay. It's, it depends on the plant, you know, species usually depending on which some of them can produce very small flower spikes. They don't produce a ton of seed. Um, uh, as opposed to, you know, some of the hybrids, I could get, oh my God, uh, thousands of seeds. Wow. Thousands. You know, I fill a seed flat and it just looks like a green lawn. <laughs> uh, and some plants seem to produce stronger seed. You know, I've known plants in the greenhouse that I'm like, you, they might have a, a hundred flowers but I'll put maybe uh, only one parent on it just because I know it's not a good seed producer. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to get as many seeds of that of just up the whole stock instead of doing like, you know, a couple of it. Cause why, what am I going to do with one or two seeds of one hybrid, keep them for my own pleasure. But um, you could get thousands of seed. Each capsule probably produces, hmm, I don't know, 80 seeds, 60 wow. seeds, 80. Yeah. And there's a ton of capsules on a flower, so they could produce a lot. Now, okay, so I have noticed, and this is something I've been wanting to ask you, um, it seems that in the carnivorous and specifically Nepenthes culture, when you do a lot of these complex hybrids, so I'm just going to name something like Ventricrosa, crossed with the Maxima, crossed with the Loei, you tend to write it all out with your brackets and your parentheses and so on and so forth. Why do you guys notate it like that instead of giving it a cultivar name? You know, it's funny. That's the only math that I really know. I joke. I'm like, wow. When I see the parentheses and brackets, I'm like, I wish I like knew this when I was in high school and college doing math. <laughs> it no, it's no sense to me, but it makes sense what plants. Um, for me personally, you know, hybrids are getting so complex that is going to have to change for me in some aspects. You know, I can't have 20 name tags for just one plant. <laughs> um, the names are so long. But as a collector, I love seeing the names written out. Mm -hmm. And I love knowing what the, the parentage is and knowing what maybe I could pull back out of that plant um, with further breeding. Okay. Uh, when you give something a cultivar name, you know, there are cultivars today where you start to lose what the parentage is and, and you know, something like the St. Gaia that are out. Okay, mm -hmm. St. Gaia, but what is it? And like, right. the, lineage, breeding, the lineage is, is lost. Like, yeah, the name gets lost. And uh, me and I, I know many collectors, we love seeing all the names written out. We love it. Um, okay. But you know, the times are changing. The names are getting so long that we're going to have to figure something out. But also for me with cultivar naming, I have named a few plants. Um, I truly feel that the plant has to be special. I don't want to just name something for the sake of shortening the name. It's like, it, there has to be a meaning behind it. It has to, you know, represent what the traits are or sure. what it looks like. And, you know, you make a complex hybrid, they all look different. This is Nepenthes, I don't know, sunshine, but like what happens if some of them are just black, like what's <laughs> sunshine. Right. So I feel like cultivar naming and, you know, I feel like as a, as a plant grower, I feel like a cultivar name should be saved for very specific, unique traits that make that plant really special.
or 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 yeah. that you have enough to share because I think that's the other thing mm-hmm. is like even in philodendrons there's been some really weird crosses but now you're only talking about you know one or two plants surviving and like you said does that even have a recorded lineage it's almost like you need a family tree so that when you know you're you know using plant x you already know that plant x is a result of these other letters further back because like you're saying how how are you supposed to fit that on a on a tag not to mention even in a description of a website how efficiently with words can you tell somebody even with the brackets right for collectors they may be able to understand it but i do think that people are quick to just come up with the common name because they don't in the in the like consumer world many don't understand the process of that which is one of the reasons why we're we we were so excited to have you on the podcast too because every grower has slightly different ways you know even if there are standards you know there's different ways that every Mm -hmm. grower does it and it's unique yeah yeah it's it's something that I'll definitely have to figure out um, as the time goes on. Right now, um, the furthest I've got with it, besides very specific um, plants that I do give names, um, you know, there's a plant called Lowy Ivici Ibashi on it. It's a very well-known hybrid. And anymore, like when I put that in, not on a name tag, I, I'm still writing things out fully, but uh, a lot of collectors, including myself now, instead of writing all that out, we just put LVB in and capital mm-hmm. and if you grow nepenthes you most people would just understand that it's loewi ivici bashiana well and a lot uh, of a lot of orchid growers and hybridizers do that now too especially if it's a you know intergeneric hybrid there's you know blc is brassio lelio catlia yeah yeah so you have to learn it you have to learn it um it's almost like a a shorthand for the for the grower um one thing that I've been doing uh, that really helps people, even when they're trying to, you know, tell me what they want, um, I give every one of the plants I create um, a number. So, you, you know, it starts with RE for Red Leaf Exotics dash, and I start with 0001, now 0002. Hmm. So they could just say, hey, do you have RE 00 whatever five, um, instead of rambling off the name or, <laughs> you know whatever. So maybe it will just turn into, it sounds a little more cold if I just make it like a number that they can maybe look up in a a database to see the name, but I much rather it that than just, I don't know, coming up with a name on a whim because there's so many plants coming out and that we have here. I I just, I don't even know how to make names up for them at this point. (laughs) Yeah. And I I do think you then run into the problem too. I like that scientific notation is becoming more prevalent uh, as the years have progressed. Cause I mean, Brett, correct Mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong. Nobody was doing this even a decade ago other than really like hybridizers, but you didn't even have standard greenhouses labeling what date batches were planted in or, you know what I mean? It just wasn't the data side of things wasn't there for the longest time. However, Mm -hmm. the really cool thing is to see that that database would exist because I think a lot of times, like you're saying, you just completely lose even the ability to know the difference between two plants and i think oftentimes like you said how many words can you come up with there's a red emerald peperomia there's a red emerald philodendron there's you know all these different things so when you eventually get to the same one that is unique but how many times can you say red stem you know what i mean like and and try to describe it with the same words especially when a lot of these plants 
as hybrids have progressed, you're talking about really minute differences. It was one thing when black Cardinal was like one of the only black philodendrons out there. But now that you have so many, yeah, I'm sure you run out of English words to name things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the number, <laughs> the number is the only thing I'm coming up with right now. I'm like, if I can't write the name out, uh, and you know, the website is kind of like a database in itself, mm -hmm. you know, uh, any hybrid I make, it just stays on the website and the numbers there. So in itself, people can go and look and even, you know, I have some hybrids now I can't even fit them, you know, in the, the title on the website, in the description, I write it all out. Um, by the way, this is what the parents are. Um, <laughs> but if it can fit there, I, I definitely write it all out, but I have to somewhere write it it all out so people know what's in the plant. So now, really Dom, to segue a little bit, I know personally you grow a lot of rare and unusual aeroids in your personal collection. Um, yeah. to, na to name a few, I know you have a very, very large Anthurium decipiens as well as a Spiritus Sancti. And so what in what of your two houses are you growing a lot of your aeroids in? I grow most all of uh, the aeroids in the Hylam greenhouse, okay. and they love it. They love it. Um, growing them in the lowland, uh, I don't know what it is. The highland is brighter and cooler, and especially the anthuriums love the cooler. Um, the lowland, with all the heat, I tend to see uh, the plants... Um, I don't know, pests can be more prevalent. They mm -hmm. really come at them quick. Very hard to, you know, upkeep on that. Uh, in the highland, they just, they grow so fast. I don't have any pest issues in there. Um, yeah, and I'm mainly in there, so that's how it started. I'm like, I'm just growing these in here. Oh, I have <laughs> this Monstera, whatever it is. Oh, that probably wants a lot of heat. Uh, no, you're, I'm always in the highland. I want to look at you a lot. So you're just going to try, you're just going to grow in here. And I've had no issues with, you know, 50 degree nights and sometimes it's actually and this is mistake but gone down to 43 and i mean you guys get that in florida mm -hmm. um not a problem they they just really seem to like um like a lot of plants i'm noticing they really seem to like the warm day and the cool night they like that night drop a lot of plants seem to love that um and, and the air is just love growing in that greenhouse i, I do That's think awesome. though with all the ways that we're learning to artificially grow plants, you know, especially in the the lighting scenarios with artificial lighting and stuff. I do think there's a lot to be said, like you've alluded to several times, about plants being able to see natural daylight cycles, what would be, you know, uh, comfortable daytime to low time drops, you know, all those things that would be common in nature. But even though theoretically you can grow foliage faster under artificial light, in theory, um, I do think there's like a natural, uh, the plant feeling healthier. You know what I mean? There's something just like us standing in a, in a forest somewhere and, and reconnecting with nature. I do think they know the difference between if that temperature is good or not, if that light is real or not. Is it getting shorter as the day, as the year progresses? You know, that kind of thing. I think they are in tune to a lot more than we see. Absolutely. Plants I have agree. minds. Plants have minds. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Yes they do and i feel like the thing you know because i have some artificial lighting in the greenhouse i usually so do we no it's judgment. not all <laughs> up. Um, what's that i said so do we no judgment <laughs> oh yeah um you know you need it for certain things but 
I think, you know, with growing, you know, the aeroids don't really get any artificial light. I have spotlights up over them, but I know it's not doing anything. It's just making them look pretty. Mm -hmm. um, I have it for when I'm working in there. But one of the benefits to having them in, you know, that the greenhouse where the temperature drops and the seasons change pretty much, it triggers them to do certain things like um, even the Nepenthes, uh, people that are growing them under lights and everything's so consistent and there's no change. There mm -hmm. are benefits, you know, the plant just grows so quick and just keeps growing. But with, for me, I get a lot of my flowers because of, oh, it's shorter daylight. Okay. Let me shoot up a flower. Something's changing. It's really benefited me having the seasonal change inside the greenhouse, as opposed to consistent conditions, consistent light, consistent temperature. They really seem to like, um, the shift in seasons. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So. <laughs> absolutely. I feel like as a, as a breeder, it is definitely a benefit to be able to have that to naturally induce these cycles in the plants. And one thing that's different yeah. is when we, you know, you, you saying that the greenhouse got down to 40 something, I'm sure sent a shiver down Brett's back. Like it would mine just because, yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> because in Florida, like we, try so much especially in what we do like obviously growing plants fast is you know important and obviously when you're growing stock plants for breeding purposes not saying the foliage doesn't matter but the foliage quality isn't what's ultimately going to ship to a customer it's going to be involved in the breeding process whereas we have to be more mindful of you know damage to any foliage however the difference between a plant like if it was had survived all of winter keeping a minimum of 58 and in one night drop to 43 the plant's gonna have a problem that's a big shift mm -hmm. but if you're letting the season like you're saying happen naturally and it's only seeing those changes slowly day by day plants can you know can can modify themselves and can adapt a lot wider than we give them credit but when you keep it inside your house take it outside to water and leave it out for one night yeah that's gonna have a much bigger Ooh. impact than letting it happen in a transitionary period that is the biggest thing. I mean, you know, as we know, plants in nature aren't moving around. They're kind of stuck where they are. Yeah. Um, everything with plants is just so gradual and steady and slow. Uh, I've learned that more than ever with Nepenthes. They cannot stand being shifted. Um, you know, I get customers or people that will message me, why does my plant have no pictures? I had it outside and then I put it inside and then I moved it to this window and then I moved it to that window. I'm like, first of all, <laughs> stop moving your plant. It doesn't want to be moved. Just put it somewhere um, and, and let it settle in there. Plants, you know, they're, they're not you know, they don't have legs and they're not walking around. They want everything to be gradual and steady and no big shifts ever. That's always never a good idea. <laughs> so now I do, Dom, I do want to make sure we go over. So I believe that you have crossed or not crossed. You have set seed on your Philodendron Spiritus Sancti, correct? Ah, ah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So please to give me give me that story. So um it had it had a bunch of blooms, but you were only able to get seed to set on, on a couple, right? Like what was mm -hmm. that what was that very nerve wracking process, I'm sure? It was it was. Um, <laughs> but it was, but it wasn't because, you know, Nepenthes are my main focus. So mm -hmm. the aeroids in some essence are just kind of like, eh, let's do this for fun. Eh, let's see how this goes. So there's kind of not, not really pressure. I mean, sure. being the plant that it is obviously would be amazing to reproduce it. 
Um, and just to go back really quick about the temperature and the shift in seasons, you know, I know people that have been growing uh, spiritus for, you know, 20 plus years and never had a bloom on it. And they are, you know, in places like Florida where the seasonal changes and as drastic as where I live up in here. And I feel like the shift in the season is really what made that plant set its flowers. Um, and when it did, there were seven of them. And I was told by people like, you're never going to self-pollinate it. Nobody's ever done it. Or, well, someone in Brazil, Rodrigo, has. Um, so obviously it was possible. But I think he... Uh, had two different plants he was working with, but people were just like, oh, nobody can do it. It's probably not going to work. And I'm like, let's see what happens. Yeah, so I accept the, first the challenge. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a challenge. Here we go. <laughs> um, so the first flower that opened, obviously I couldn't do anything with. I'm like, okay, let's just get pollen on this one. And I've never paid attention to philodendron flowers and the where the pollen is and whatever but you know I, I feel like i grow a lot of different kind of arrows and it's all kind of the same stuff so i'm like all i know is it's first male that or female then it shuts down then the pollen will be produced later because they don't want to self-pollinate so just with that basic knowledge and understanding you know what happens to the plant in the wild so the first night the the one flower opened um I was like, okay, I can't do anything with this. So the next day, uh, I was late to getting to it. It already, it was, it was already closing. So I'm like, oh, this didn't even produce pollen because I was watching it, and I was like, oh, maybe this is why it's really hard to produce. Maybe it just doesn't have a lot of pollen. But I peeled open the spathe, and it was like a white, creamy substance. <laughs> so funny like similar <laughs> white creamy substance and I I'm like well that must have, must be pollen whether it came out while it closed up or whatever I'm like this definitely has to be pollen so I chopped the flower off and I immediately I put it in a bag and I just threw it in the fridge and I'm like I'll, I'll just freeze it up I, I really didn't know what I was doing mm -hmm. so a couple days later the next flower opened and I got the flower I let it thaw out and again, it was like a milky, creamy, had to be pollen. And there was some of the, the resin in there, like mm -hmm. that brown, uh, sticky resin. And I, I just got my paintbrush. I scooped it off uh, the inside of the flower. And I just like, you know, painted it down inside. And I did it as soon as the flower opened. Um, looking into it, uh, you know, people say, uh, you have to wait for thermogenesis when the flower heats up because I guess that's in the wild. Beetles can see the heat of the flower and they're like, hey, let's go in there and have sex and pollinate the flower <laughs> or whatever. And then I guess they sleep in there and leave in the morning and I'm sure they carry the pollen to another flower um, that's warmed up and, and ready to be pollinated. But I looked at the flower. There was no thermogenesis. I, right. I felt it. Nothing was warm and hot. And I'm like, you know, this flower's full open, fully open. I, I'm not waiting for any heat up. I'm like, it's saying, please do, do something yeah, to me, regardless of what was going on. <laughs> so I just put it immediately um, as the flower opened. I, 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 I came back multiple times, uh, even the next day when it was male. Um, I still went in and still got the female flowers. And then that was that for that flower. Um, and then... Uh, as the other flowers open, I would do the same thing. I'd kind of collect the pollen, try to keep it in the fridge. I did 
overlapping uh, sequences of different techniques on the other flowers, the same I did on the first flower. Um, and amongst all that, I did, here's where plants have minds and energy. <laughs> I did, I held its leaves and I was like just rubbing them. And I said, will you please just make me like, you know, a few seeds, you don't have to get crazy, just <laughs> something. This would be amazing. And out of all seven flowers, um, all the ones I, I pollinated after the first flower within days would turn yellow and fall off. And the first one I did was just staying there. I'm like, oh my God, this is a good sign. This is a good sign. And I was talking to bigger uh, reputable growers and they're like, well, if, if it's on there for four weeks, you're probably successful. Right. So I was just every day looking at the flower, looking at the flower. I would go in the greenhouse and turn my head. And if I couldn't see the flowers back, I'm like, oh my God, it fell off. But it didn't. Um, <laughs> so I would just hover over it. I pollinated it. Um, on the 4th of July, which is awesome because I can remember the date so easy. <laughs> and then I would just watch it every day, every day slowly. Um, some of the flower, the um, where the flowers were, the female parts would get kind of like a moldy mildew on them. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want it to rot and fall off. So I, I definitely kept the greenhouse a little more dry and made sure I would get like a paper, a, a napkin and, and kind of dab the, the seed spike, seed head so that moisture wasn't building up so nothing would rot off. And it was around September 25th or something um, that I went in the greenhouse. I actually came back from Pennsylvania and that day I came in the greenhouse and I saw that the stock was kind of yellow and it was wilting. I'm like, oh no, I'm going to lose it. Like I had no clue. Um, but I, I pulled it off and, and I pulled one of the little bait fruits off and it looked like there was little mini rice, <laughs> rice, <laughs> I don't know, just looked like rice inside of it with like two to four seeds in each thing. And I was just a little worried. I'm like, oh, I wonder if the seeds are underdeveloped. Um, mm. uh, Cause going like, I, I've done anthuriums and the seeds were so much larger, right. even though it's not an anthurium. So I'm like, oh, I wonder if this worked. I wonder if they're just little duds, um, but it definitely, it was not a dud. Uh, I pulled off the seed head. I put it in water and just kind of mushed it around to get all the like gelatin and uh, sea coat off it. And I had all these little sacks and it, it took, you know, days on end and very, a lot of patience to separate every seed. Um, and then, you know, it was, I don't know, three weeks later, they started sprouting. And there are a lot. So wow. exciting. That is yeah, nice. They're actually right beside me. Um, I'm so protective of them. I do have <laughs> one little pot down the greenhouse. I'm like, you are not staying in the greenhouse. I have them in a grow tent just for them in my bedroom uh, with lighting and stuff. And they're growing like weeds. So it's so exciting. It's so exciting. It's like kind of one of those things that I was like, oh, never expected that to happen. But great. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, the, your plant rewarded you for all the all yeah. the time and patience. Yeah. I love that. It was definitely the little pep talk you, you had with it. <laughs> it was. And, you know, another thing I believe is I pollinated those other flowers. I definitely overlapped the practice that I did on the other one, but they didn't make it. And to me, it's just a clear sign that the plant was saying, one seed spike, one seed pot is enough. That's all mm -hmm. the energy I'm putting into this. Right. And I don't care to give seed pods on every single one of my flowers. I've got energy for that. Mm -hmm. So here's one. Be happy with that. And literally, that's all it needed to make. It, it did not need to make any more than that. Um, and yeah, it was, it was just very successful. That's, that's so exciting. Yeah, so exciting. One of the questions we ask uh, all the podcast guests oh. 
is um, something that you don't have to admit any more than you, you want to. But one of the things we love putting guests on the spot on is um, what is one of the bigger mistakes you've made? Because I, I, we firmly believe at Gabriella Plants that part of the only way to learn how to grow is to do like you're describing throughout this entire interview. Um, you got to just start somewhere and you only learn how to deal with the pests when you cross that bridge and, and all that type of learning. What, uh, what is a, a remarkable maybe story or failure that really ended up teaching you a lot in what you do? Ooh, um, I told you I was putting you on the spot. <laughs> yeah this is a I mean space. I feel like just the journey from coming from you know oh I'm a hobbyist I grow plants to like you're producing a lot of plants you have a ton of plants and you're supplying people and let's face it some plants are not cheap um just becoming more commercially aware of my practices like I used to get sphagnum moss and put it all over my benches everywhere in every corner but you know, that can be a breeding ground for pests. Um, just learning how to properly manage a greenhouse so that things are, you know, growing good and there's not diseases and pests running rampant. And that's probably been the biggest challenge. Um, you know, moving when I first moved here from Brooklyn, I brought uh, brought some mealybugs with me. We all know how fun those are. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, that 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 took a lot of discipline to get into checking the plants more, making sure they're a little more spread out, making sure that, you know, dead foliage and things are really cleaned up. Um, so I would say that kind of like pests and diseases um, have been, you know, yeah, probably the, the biggest challenge, but have learned it. And, and I think, you know, it's really overwhelming if you get something like thrips or whatever, oh my God, thrips, who loves those? <laughs> um, it's like just to learn how to manage them and not let it overwhelm you because, mm -hmm. you know, if your plants have pests and stuff and you're just so overwhelmed and you're not going to handle those pests, they're going to get out of control and they're going to devastate things. You're not going to be able to sell them. So it's just kind of, for me, it's been um, when things were a little more out of control with them to, to my liking was this is fine. This happens to plants. It's natural. And you just need to start somewhere and handle it and just make sure you're like consistent and you're not letting up on it. Like that has been the biggest challenge probably, but not as big of a challenge now since I'm very comfortable with it and I kind of know how it goes. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah, probably that. Yeah. That's a good answer. Yeah. yeah it's definitely, um, definitely just one of those things then, that you work through and grow, you know, you make mistakes, you learn from it, and you're like, well, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah, there's just, you know, as you guys know, people will ask all the time, how do you grow this? And when do you do this? And what's your temperature? And what's that? And what's your fertilizer? That only goes so far. You know, everyone's different. Everyone kind of has a different energy for how they care for their plants. Everyone's conditions are different. Your plant might drink water faster. So there's just a lot of trial and error. And then you just, you know, you learn the plants and you learn what they like and you learn your practices and you just all you can do is keep learning making more mistakes and learning from them and getting just getting more comfortable with it you you've <clears> mentioned <throat> that you're very much a fan of all natural in in any sense that you can i'm curious though do you track any of the conditions in a data way like are you measuring the light exposure month to month or are you 
just kind of letting nature be nature and, and working on the things that you can control. Just curious, even if you're not attempting to control the temperature, are you monitoring or recording so that you're aware of those things? I am. Um, I use a very basic, I'm sure you guys have seen it, it's called sensor push. Um, I just have them set up around the greenhouse. They're a little uh, doodad thing. You just put it around your plants and they me measure the um, just the temperature and the humidity. Um, and I only use that if, if I see something like, oh, it, it seems like, you know, a lot of pitchers are turning brown right now or something shifted. I'll just glance at it and see, oh, the humidity looks like it dropped down because the fan might not have gone on or something. Um, but I'm very, I'm just so comfortable with it now. I'm not so technical and like digging into, you know, the issue. I, I naturally accept that, you know, the shift in seasons shifts the plants and, and some of them in a negative way, some of them in a positive way. Um, but I'm not, I don't track it too hardcore, you know. I don't have uh, crazy LEDs all over the greenhouse houses on a light photo period to track all that. I, I just understand that, you know, the light's getting shorter now. Some of the plants are probably going to slow up. Some of them are probably going to lose pictures. Um, yeah, I, I don't dig into it too much. Um, I just look at the temp and the humidity here and there to make sure nothing's too crazy. Okay, Shane. <laughs> no, that was it. That was my that was my final that was my final question. Now, I uh, you know, it's just been something obviously because we rely on heating and stuff in, in Central Florida, we have a lot of those systems that tie in, but I always think it's interesting to hear what matters to different growers, especially Brett as we get to different parts of the country. You know, we obviously mm -hmm. have um, to be mindful of super hot, super cold. Um, some parts of the country are, you know, not all too worried about temperature, but you know, humidity is the thing they're really looking after. Um, so it's always just interesting to see, especially as we go from growers that grow different, you know, specialize in different things, um, what types of conditions or, or things that they do track year to year or month to month and e either digitally or a notepad, you know, I know plenty of, of, growers who have a, a generally speaking, just notepad that counts, you know, the daylight days. If there was a, a, a series where we had lots of cloudy days in a row, you know, just simple things that are from grower to grower, I think are fascinating in what matters to you and your location and your greenhouse. Yeah. Um, you know, once the, I've been here now almost four years. And for me, it's been learning every year how to adjust the greenhouse um, from, you know, spring into summer, from uh, a fall into winter. Uh, you know, I have an evaporative cooling wall and I just know at this point, I'm like, okay, in spring, once it starts to get hot and I have to open that thing up and, and it starts sucking the air. And although it does humidify the air, the plants are like, wait, this thing hasn't been on all winter. What is this now? So they mm -hmm. have to adjust a little bit. And I've gotten comfortable and better at adjusting them and acclimating them in and switching them into the new season. Um, and then in the winter and now the cooler months, you know, that's all closed up. I'm not really using any mechanical exhaust or anything. I'll open a vent to let some escape out the top. But, you know, I have to slow up on watering because it's so much more boxy and humid. So that's it's not evaporating, evaporating as much. So I have to hold up on watering. But it's just kind of like season to season, um, getting, you know, an idea of, of what's going on. And I, I'm definitely a lot more comfortable and understand, um, you know, how I need to do that. And the plants definitely, you could see like this year, uh, you know, the first year the Highlanders, when summer came, it was so devastating. I wanted to cry. I'm like, I can't grow Nepenthes. Uh, um, what happened to me? <laughs> and then, you know, the second year, I'm like, okay, last year, 
the evaporative wall, um, I think the fan was too strong. Maybe I should block some of it off and let the air come in a little slower. And then that helped me. And then this year, you know, what I learned from the previous year, I did not even notice the plants switch. They just kept getting better. I'm like, yes, third year's a charm. We got it. Yeah, there you go. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And even like, you know, finding the little microclimates in the greenhouse where the seedlings like to be, where the cuttings like to be, where the big plants like to be. Um, yeah, just and always a learning process. In close- but I just kind of keep a lot of it in my head. I'm not very uh, no- noty or technical. Yeah. I just kind of look at the plants. I'm like, mm, this is what's going on. <laughs> Well, last question as we wrap up, is there any um, thing that you would have as advice to kind of more uh, intro people? Maybe they're, they were able to get one of your more prized possessions. Um, obviously, you are there to help your customers, I'm sure. Um, but any kind of useful tips for people who want to get into caring for these plants better within their homes? You cut out for the last minute or second? Uh, just is there any recommendations for tips for kind of, I wouldn't say beginners, but beginners or advanced people for caring for Nepenthes in their homes? With with beginners, I would say, and just anyone getting into any kind of plant, um, I totally, we've all been there. I totally get the wanting to get it and just get it and, and, and feel that rush and, and just, you know, but if I could go back, maybe, um, or maybe that's what I learned from, <laughs> Just be patient and make sure you just read up on the plan a little bit. Get an idea of the humidity. Get an idea of what you're getting yourself into um, and be prepared uh, and then get the plant. You know, have its, you know, little setup ready for it with misters or whatever you're going to do. And and that's going to just set you up for success. If you're just buying plants to get them and you have no clue what you're doing, you're, you're going to learn, obviously, but you're going to just set yourself self up for frustration or maybe killing the plant or just be prepared for it. Um, and I'm always, always around to help my customers learn and grow and, and just kind of alter their conditions or help them, you know, grow something a little better, but it's just being patient too. Um, just like, you know, learning how to love something. They're, they're not humans, they're plants and they require something different. Um, and it's just being patient with yourself um, and the plants and not giving up. You know, some people will, kill one plant and they feel like they'll never be able to grow it again, but mm-hmm. they, they know nothing about it. They've had it like a week. Um, don't give up and, and just keep pushing on learning about it and keep trying. That's awesome. That's great advice. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, It can be overwhelming and like, you know, nobody wants to kill something. It makes you feel like you failed, but um, you got to just keep doing it and you'll eventually get it if you're dedicated. Um, and start out with affordable plants. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Uh, speaking of, I, I just, I see some people, you know, with the spirit of sync die, like, like, Hey, I just got my new baby. And then I just peek and I'm like, wow, this person just spent like $10,000 on a, a mature spiritus and they don't grow any plants at all. Right. Hmm, I wonder how that's going to go for them. Not that they're really hard to grow, but I'd say don't do things like that. Don't don't spend ten thousand dollars on a plant if you've never grown a plant before. Uh, start slow. <laughs> that is that is great advice. So now, um, Dom, for all of our listeners who are, I'm sure, very intrigued after this conversation, where can they uh, find you? What's your website? What's your Instagram? Um, where where can they find all of these wonderful nepenthes you grow? 
uh, Instagram is at Redleaf Exotics. Uh, the website is redleafexotics.com. Um, and I also sell on Etsy too, um, some of the more beginner type plants, um, also at Redleaf Exotics. All right. Well, there we go. Um, this has been absolutely wonderful, Dom. I'm so glad we were able to get you on here. Um, I, I hope all of our listeners learned a lot about growing Nepenthes and just plants in general. Um, I, I love doing this podcast because we get to see and hear how all different growers from all over the country are, are growing in their own unique way. And so this was, this was really exciting. So thank you for joining us. You're welcome. So excited. I'm like so pumped to go down the greenhouse now. I'm like, I want to be around with the plants. <laughs> Yay. Well, um, thank you, Dom. And until next time, uh, this is, uh, Brett, Shane and Zach signing off. So bye guys. Bye guys. You have a good day. Thank you. Well, that was great. That was that was great. I feel like with a lot of our guests, we could talk for way more than the time we have allotted. Oh yeah, most definitely. If you want to see, if you want to hear a uh, a week long podcast, you know, <laughs> ten thousand likes and we'll do it. It definitely becomes a balance of you know wanting to dive as deep as possible while still re- you know remaining respectful to these different people's time. Um, and mm-hmm. it it was definitely a a really crazy episode. And you know, it's also. We, t- we talk about it a lot, like I brought up, like the transitioning of plants and stuff, but it's always crazy um, to see people who are doing something entirely different than what we would do here at Gabriella Plants um, and being completely successful doing it. Yep, there's more than one way to grow a plant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I just really thank Dom for coming on the podcast. That was um, really awesome. A couple other housekeeping things, Brett. How are, how are the greenhouses looking? I know things are slowing down for... Um, winter here. Uh, we'll touch on shipping and some of the other open hours and stuff, but how's the greenhouse looking? How are you feeling um, setting us up for spring of next year? Plants are great. Uh, like you said, things are slowing down a little bit, but um, we have the heaters coming on at, at nights that we get below 60 degrees. Um, so, I mean, it's not really that much of a slowdown. Uh, if a couple weeks ago we had any empty benches, they now have all been filled. Um, so we are back to kind of bursting at the seams with plants. And so we're just waiting for them to continue growing and we will have plenty of new and upcoming plants planned for the 2022 season. Yeah, I'm so excited for everything that's growing over there. Um, another thing to touch on, um, shop some some shop hours. Obviously, we're recording this before Thanksgiving, if you're listening to this at some other time, but we will be closed on uh, Thanksgiving and Black Friday, but we'll be reopened on Small Business Saturday. And for shipping through the website, if you're online or throughout the country, um, I believe our cutoff is December 16th or 18th. Um, I could come back and put the correct date in here, but uh, we will be cutting off orders there about a week before Christmas. Uh, Just not a great time with the delays in package arrivals for us to be shipping plants, but we'll be back and resuming uh, shipping online orders right at the start of the year. So uh, just a heads up that those last two weeks, um, we're not going to ship your plant and have it uh, caught up in all those delays that can happen when everyone is getting those last minute Christmas presents. Speaking of which, Brett, have you done your Christmas shopping yet? No, I have not. And I was already thinking about that the other day is 
dang it, I need to get on top. We're of supposed that. to start that already. I, well, that's, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I I'm not good at the whole holiday thing, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, definitely that time of year again, and uh, something that we obviously do every year is 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 not really ship in those weeks, just because it's better for the plant health. But we will obviously hold any order that does get placed um, until we resume shipping again. And don't forget your winter insurance, um, Zach. How are things in the media realm? I know we have some very exciting things to talk about with Gabriel the Growers Club. That may be the next podcast. In fact, um, we'll have to see how that goes, but we're getting closer on that. What other things are coming through the media world for you? Oh yeah, that is, uh, we've been doing a lot of work on that. Um, actually currently behind us, we have Chuck, um, in the warehouse building a little film set so that we can, uh, you know, really take these workshops and educational content to the next level. Just, um, I don't know, just way more material for you guys as listeners to learn from and, you know, hopefully be entertained from as well. Absolutely. And um, so, yeah, we're really excited about that. Um, the vlog is, uh, we just put out episode 10 last Friday. Woo-woo. So if you haven't seen that, go check it out. Gabriel Plants on YouTube. We're always putting up uh, little shorts in between the vlogs to kind of fill out, um, you know, content. So do a lot of greenhouse updates with Brett Mm -hmm. where he'll dive into just certain plants he's working on propagating the, you know, all the fun stuff. Um, but yeah, so this is probably going to be the end of season one for the podcast. Yeah. Here pretty much. I would say, yeah, which I think is, uh, it's been a success so far. Good. Yeah. It's uh, crazy to think that we've done now 21 episodes of this that is wild yeah absolutely does not feel like that at all (laughs) and uh yeah if you uh haven't already definitely uh rate and review us on your favorite podcast app it definitely helps us out uh as we try to share every plant stories uh with that anything else brett or zach no i think we're good and look forward to uh the next podcast we are able to bring you guys sweet deal well if you have any questions or comments about this podcast or anything else in the plant world feel free to shoot us uh an email at feedback at everyplantstory.com as well as uh connect with us on our instagram at everyplantstory and with that until next time see ya bye guys